You're listening to a DM podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to the new series of Heroes and Howlers. It's me, Mikey Robbins, and my mate Paul Wilson. Hi everybody. Look, we're both still a couple of history tragics, but this season it's not just us doing the heavy lifting. That's right, Mikey. This season we've got special guests picking out their very own heroes. And howlers. (laughs) Yeah, we're still on the lookout for those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. And we're still uncovering the cock-ups, those moments of madness that have made the world what it is today. But now we've got backup. And together, we'll be turning history back to front and back again. Hi everyone, from the mistletoe in the corner, I can see it's near the end of the year. Thank you so much for listening. So we thought we'd leave you with a few end of year presents. That's right. It's the season for giving gifts, isn't it, Mikey? Oh, so yeah. we thought we'd bring a few treats for each other. And uh, as you, listeners, I'm sure, know by now, there's the first thing that Mikey always loves is a bit of food. I, lo- I love food, I love history, I love food history, Paul. <laughs> so I thought I'd uh, bring in about the Michelin stars. Um, and this actually all started... Yeah. Because I was sent a lovely little pic by one of the listeners of the original Michelin Michelin Man. Um, you know, the you know, the cartoon with the big white tyres around yeah, yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, mate, when I was 160 kilos, I looked a lot like the Michelin <laughs> Man. Well, this, this listener actually sent a picture from 1894 of the original uh, guy. And there he is. Yeah. It's a real man, uh, not a cartoon. And he is dressed up in these tyres. And... Of course, they are white tyres, and I didn't know this, Mikey. Maybe you did. But originally, all tyres were white because oh, right. because of the rubber. Yeah. They only actually became black because in 1912, the makers of the tyres realised that if they put carbon chemicals into the tyres, that made them more durable, but of course, at the same time, it turned them black as well, but it meant that they could go for a longer time. Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and you know I failed science at school. <laughs> Is that where we get vulcanised rubber from? Or... Actually, I'll tell you what, here's a Christmas treat for the listeners. You guys go Google that and let us know. Let us know, exactly. All right, so we're in France, yes. and the, the largest tyre producer, obviously, is Michelin, but why the Michelin stars? Well, what happened was, back in the beginning of the 20th century, Michelin decided, okay, what we're going to do, we're going to have a reviewing system for restaurants so that more people will travel further distances in their cars to eat at these restaurants and therefore use their cars, wear down their tyres faster and, of course, therefore have to buy more tyres. So the star system that the Michelin guys came up with, obviously the one, two, three, one broken down by whether or not it's, you know, worth driving to the restaurant. So a one-star is a very good restaurant in its category. Yeah. Yeah, two-star was originally excellent cooking worth a detour Ah, in the car. And then the three-star was exceptional cuisine worth a special journey. As we now call it, destination dining. Exactly right. So it's all because of tyres that now we get, you know, the hat system and the star system for restaurants, which I thought, Mikey, would be right up your street. It is exactly, mate. Up my street and up my restaurant as well. Now, I thought I'd do something for you, Paul, because you've got two kids. I, I don't have a kid. It's report card time of year. Yes. Uh, look, I, I know you've got two bright kids there. So are, are you happy with that? Yeah, we're, we're, they've done all right. Yeah, Bobby, they, I think he's very happy about his uh, maths result. With it. <laughs> well, yeah, we've already mentioned my maths results from school. <laughs> so I was thinking about it. And it isn't even if you, if you have kids, but even, even if you were a student once. I'm assuming these days you get the report cards over the computer via email. Well, that's it. All by email these days, yes. Okay. You're old friend. Remember that last day of school 
when that one envelope in your school bag weighed a ton. The physical, yeah, we used to call them quartiles at my school. You got divided into four, and it's like a piece of card. It wasn't even paper. It was actually a full-on card. Now, I had the same report card all the way through <laughs> primary school. Five A's, two B's. Oh, right. A's for everything except a B for maths and a B for craft. That's not bad. Well, I should point out, my mum did most of my craft projects. <laughs> uh, I am all thumbs. But then got me thinking about some report cards I got in high school. Now, it may not surprise you, I got pretty good history marks. Good. Yeah, I had a math teacher describe me once as one of the greatest disappointments of his teaching career, <laughs> which is fair enough. And I, I've still got at home, this also goes into university, I've got a letter from a lecturer. Mr. Robbins, would you please consider buying a typewriter? That's how old it is. Ooh. Because your handwriting is like that of a drunken spider that has fallen into an inkwell. Ooh. Yeah. For anyone out there who is looking back at old report cards, or, or maybe your kids didn't get the report cards you want, I've been collating some bad report cards that have been collected by some of the greatest minds of the 20th century. Okay. Alan Turing. Yes. One of the great minds of the world. Yeah, of course. Par computing. Yeah, we're talking about him with Tracy Spicer. Exactly. With the AI. I've, I've got a few samples from Turing's report cards and assessments from the late 1920s. Okay. 1927. A very good terms work, but his style is dreadful and his paper is always untidy. Mm. Not very good. He spends a great deal of time, apparently in investigation in advanced mathematics, to the neglect of his elementary work. A sound groundwork is essential to, in any subject. His work is dirty. Ooh. Which makes me feel better about my handwriting. <laughs> yeah. In fact, in 1929... His work on higher certificate papers shows distinct promise, but he must realise the ability that is needed to put it in a neat and tidy solution on paper. Ah, he's not tidy, is he, this guy? No, no, which makes me feel better about myself. My, my other favourite is Charlotte Bronte. Yeah. A teacher once wrote of her, writes indifferently and knows nothing of grammar. Ooh, dear. Um, Einstein, a Munich schoolmaster in 1895, said he will never amount to anything. Ah, excellent. Dame Judy Dench, whose headmistress once informed her parents... Judy would be a very good pupil if she lived in the real world. <laughs> one of my favourites, one of my heroes, David Bowie. Yeah. Bromley Technical School. It described the future thin white duke as a quiet student who needs to stop playing with his motorcycles and learn that music will not make him a livable wage. Ah, good. Isn't it gets me? I never thought of Bowie as a motorbike sort of kid. No. Then, of course, there's the famous John Lennon report card from 1956. Yes. Yeah, I've heard that one. Yeah, French teacher, a very intelligent boy who could be very much better with a little concentration in class. Mm. Maths teacher, he is certainly on the road to failure if this goes on. <laughs> Religion teacher, attitude in class, most unsatisfactory. Headmaster, he has too many wrong ambitions and his energy is often misplaced. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my favourite, though, is actually not a report card. It's A.A. Milne. Mm. Now, I love A.A. Milne. Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh, all that sort of stuff. He tells the story about taking home a disastrous report card and his father read it. And the headmaster relayed that the young Alan has done ill, showing little or no ambition, even in mathematics. Milne was later right upon showing this to his parents... Father turned his face to the wall and abandoned hope. <laughs> I, on the other hand, turned my face to the lighter side of life and abandoned work. Ooh, good. Lovely. Excellent. Welcome back, folks. So, yeah, as we said, it's that end of year mm. feeling, and we've got a few special gifts for one another. Yeah, for, and for you as well. And for you guys as well. But also, too, we are tickling each other's fancies, dare I speak. <laughs> That's right. And Mikey's tickle has always been 
movies, hasn't yeah. it, Mikey? Yeah, any, I love movies. Any TV, but particularly movies. And I think one of your favourites is The Third Man, if I'm not mistaken. Studied it at university, and I still love it to this day. As far as I'm concerned, it's Orson Welles' second best movie. Well, for me, that scene in the, in the Mago round is probably my favourite. Unbelievable, unbelievable piece of cinema. And of course, it's set in post-war Vienna. Yeah. Now, I always thought, you know, it's written by Graham Greene, the original screenplay. I always thought Greene was using post-war Vienna as a sort of substitute a sort of standard for post-war Berlin, oh, which, yeah. know, which was too much of a hot potato you know, to name-check directly. But actually, it turns out, no, he deliberately chose Vienna and he picked it above all other cities that he could have picked in Europe at the time because in many ways, when it came to spies and espionage, Vienna was even more of a hotbed than Berlin, Moscow, anywhere else really? in post-war Europe. Because you see, Mikey, and I didn't realise this, when... Austria was liberated in 1945. The Allies decided it was really important in terms of propaganda not to punish it as some sort of mini Germany, but rather it suited their narrative for Austria to be seen as the first victim of Nazi expansionism back in the 30s. So in 1945, just as the Allies split Germany into four zones of control, run by the Brits, the US, Russia and the French, so Austria was divided into four regions, each controlled by one of the new victors. And it would stay this way until 1955. I didn't know that. I didn't know it before I started looking at this either. Because whereas Germany was divided quite quickly into East and yeah. West Germany in 1949. Austria remained under occupation of the Western Allies and the Soviet Union uh, for another decade. And as such, Vienna became a key centre for that sort of cat and mouse yeah. agents and double agents of the Cold War era. You see, Austria was allowed to form its own new semi-independent government under a, a guy called Karl Renner in 1945-46. But the four main powers... They still had the final say on all the big decisions. And you've actually got Stalin making sure that politicians friendly to the Soviet Union you know, receive decent positions in the cabinet. You know, even though when they do actually have an election, the Austrian Communist Party, you know, backed by Stalin's money and troops, they only actually managed to get 5% of the vote. That's never stopped Stalin in the past, has it? <laughs> yes, it didn't stop Stalin and the rest of Eastern Europe. Um, but apparently the Soviet troops, they acted it so disgustingly throughout Eastern Austria, the bit that was being yeah. controlled by Russia after the war. Uh, these guys were so bad, these troops, they did much to put the average Austrian man and particularly Austrian woman, put them off communism and the new idea of an Eastern Bloc for good. So the question was, what are they going to do instead? Yeah, so like I said, we've got Germany as being um, divided in two. Right. Czechoslovakia, as soon as the Western allies pull out, the Soviets charge yeah. in and take over and bring it into their Eastern Bloc. So obviously the Western allies don't want that to happen um, to Austria right. as well. And in fact, things actually become more complicated in 1947 because you get this severe winter followed by a, a disastrous summer whereby the potato harvest in Austria fails. It's about 30% of the usual output. And you've got the whole of Austria being shaken by massive food riots. In fact, there's one horrible story in August of 1947. A food riot in Bad Ischl ends up turning into a pogrom 
against the local Jews, you know, just when you think in 1947 that's all finished, yeah, yeah. it actually wasn't. You know, this gives you an idea of how febrile the situation was. You know, even though you, obviously you've got the Marshall Plan coming in that's mm-hmm. going to be giving billions of dollars in economic aid and humanitarian aid to Austria along with Germany and some of the other countries post-war, Despite this, you've got thousands of displaced people. Many, of course, are wounded. Mm. And you've got the hospitals in particular. They're at stretching point. They're overflowing. And no matter how much the Allies have promised to help. And this is where the third man, Orson Welles, story comes in about the penicillin. That's right, yes. Yes, because I always thought, again, that was just a a device um, that Green was using. But no, it was very, very true. You see, penicillin... That had been perfected in the late 30s, early 40s in the West. But the USA and Britain, they had the patents, they had the technology, and they said to all their scientists, you must not tell anyone how we make penicillin. This is going to be the new wonder drug. We mustn't let Nazis get their hands on it. And, of course, that, by definition, the Austrians as well. So this meant in the post-war, when you've got all these hospitals overflowing with wounded people in desperate need mm. of penicillin, Suddenly, penicillin is very, very scarce. Yes, the Allies are giving it to some of the hospitals, some of the doctors, but of course, only in their, their zones of control. On the Russian side, there's no penicillin. Yeah, and in a lot of the hospitals for things like sexually transmitted diseases, that kind of thing, penicillin was not available. So there was a massive black market. So that's part of the story in The Third Man is completely true. Wow, I didn't realize it was so historically accurate that penicillin was such a nefarious sort of affair in Austria. That's right. And that's why Green chose it. And as I said, it actually went on until 1955. In fact, the only reason why finally Austria did get independence is because when Stalin died, and also Pussy got the Korean War as well, Mm. um, after that, suddenly the appetite for any further conflict was disappeared on both sides. And so finally under Khrushchev, the Russians agreed to withdraw from their zone as long as the Western Allies withdrew from their zones. Therefore, Austria was allowed to become its own country, fully independent of everyone around it, but of course, only on the condition that it was neutral, just as its neighbour, Switzerland, was. While we're talking sort of the Cold War era... I know you love a bit of Kennedy bashing. I love a bit of Kennedy bashing. And, and one of our favourite guests from, from the last season, Otto English. Otto, yes. Loves a bit of Kennedy bashing. <laughs> yes. Which got me thinking about the famous Kennedy book, and I've got my air quotes going on here, mm. Profiles in Courage. Oh, yes. Written in 1956. Now, here's the thing. Kennedy's the handsome young senator, but he seems to be lacking some intellectual gravitas. Mm. So he puts out this book. Profiles in Courage, which is pretty much about profiles in senatorial courage, right? Mm. Now, the idea for the book comes to him in 1954 when he's in his first term as a senator himself. Right. But then old bad back Jack is having a few back surgeries and has Mm. an idea to turn it into a book. His chief assistant on the book was a guy called Ted Sorensen, mm. often described as his alter ego. Okay, you know the famous phrase, ask up what your country can do for you? Yes. Way. That's Ted Sorensen. Right. Ah, yes, for this book, it's not all written by Kennedy either. Is that right? Oh, mate, honestly, quite frankly, some historians have said 
if he'd have handed this in as a sophomore paper, he'd have been done for plagiarism. Right. He oversaw the book. He had some notes about the book. But apparently Sorensen worked full-time on the project for six months, mm -hmm. up to 12 hours a day. Also, Georgetown University history professor Jules Davis. Now, the book is published in 56 to, to lavish praise. Mm -hmm. Under his name. Under, under Kennedy's oh, yeah, yeah, name. Yeah, yeah. 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 And in 1957, it's actually awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Biography. We'll get to that in a second. Right. But it established Kennedy as having gravitas. And the other thing about the book, too, is, and we can go into this maybe at a later date, some of the profiles he chooses in Courage, well, they're Democrats in a post-Civil War era America oh, right. who we wouldn't really describe as heroes. Courageous but do you remember, now. remember also, too, Kennedy had a problem with the conservative Southern Democrats. Yeah, he needed them. Yeah, so he does throw a rather broad hero net. Mm. But here's the thing. In 1957, doubts start to arise about his authorship. Ah. There's a guy called um, Drew Pearson who's a syndicated columnist, and he's being interviewed on TV by the famous Mike Wallace. And he said in 1957... Jack Kennedy is the only man in history that I know who won a Pulitzer Prize on a book which was ghostwritten for him. Now, the Kennedys are outraged. They hire the famous lawyer Clark Clifford, who collected the senator's handwritten notes and, and ran it up statements from people to say that he'd worked on the book, so much so that Wallace actually had to apologize on air for the statement. Ooh. Now, here's the thing. Kennedy made no secret about Sorensen's involvement in profiles, mm. but he calls him my research associate. Ah. No, he's not like that. In fact, the most thorough analysis of, of who did what comes from a, an, another historian, a guy called Herbert Parmet, in mm. a book called Jack, the Struggles of Jack Kennedy. Parmet goes around and he interviews people who'd actually written on the book who knew Kennedy. He went through crate after crate of papers from the Kennedy Library. Look, he found that Kennedy had contributed a few notes, mostly on John Quincy Adams. <laughs> but he found, and I'm going to give you a quote here, there is no evidence of a Kennedy draft for the overwhelming bulk of the book. Right. While the choices, the messages, and the tone of the volume are unmistakably Kennedy's, the actual work was left to committee labor. Right. The book does become a bestseller. Yeah, I was going to say, this book sets up Kennedy for the, for the whole of his career. Well, yeah, exactly. It gives him the intellectual gravitas because you yeah. know, he'd been a war hero. He was very good looking. He had mm. his father's money behind him. Which brings me to my next point. Right. It was never actually on the Pulitzer Prize shortlist. What? Yeah. But he won it. But he won it. Yeah. It, well, yeah, yeah for biography. <laughs> Shouldn't have even been there. Well, some people say Joe Kennedy's dad twisted ah, a few yes. arms. I wish I could say there was a paper trail to prove that. Mm. The, the one story that stands is that one of the judges on the committee, well, they thought the book should be up for an award because his 12-year-old grandson liked it. <laughs> Here's my reading on the profiles and courage. Yeah. Yeah, he maybe had the idea. He didn't do any work on it. And also, too, I still think he, he makes some rather clumsy, and, and in these days we would not agree with him, choices about who was heroic, to pretty much appease the Southern Democrats. And, and these choices were made, in my opinion, to pretty much gerrymander his run for presidency. My last gift for you, Mikey. Yes, mate. Um, listeners, you you probably know Mikey doesn't drive, and yeah. he loves a cab. He loves an Uber, a bit, bit of silver service. I, I, mate, I, I love my service silver. <laughs> so I thought I'd talk about the history behind the cabs, behind taxis. Of course, yeah, you're starting with the original hackney carriage, you know, back in 17th century London. And the definition of a hackney carriage, Mikey, back then was it had four wheels and two horses. And it's often assumed, you know, that hackney carriage comes from the borough 
of Hackney in East London. That's what I assumed. But actually, no, it seems that the word Hackney or Hackney yeah. is, is the French word that was used to refer a sort of middle-sized brown horse, um, which, of course, the carriage drivers for these new Hackney carriages preferred in the cities for their manoeuvrability rather than the big black stallions that were used by the coachmen driving on the wider country highways from city to city. And, of course, the, the, the highwaymen like Dick oh, yeah. Turpin would, would use. <laughs> I was uh, waiting for a Dick Turpin reference, so do go on, mate. Now I want to get through to the 19th century and because that's when a guy called Joseph Hansom who's an accomplished architect, and he actually he was designing uh, Birmingham Town Hall, some of England's most beautiful churches. But for this story, the key for him is that he patented the handsome cab. Oh, it's a handsome cab. It's a handsome cab in 1834. So... H-A-N-S-O-M. I always thought it was handsome as in good-looking. Yes, I hear, yeah. For, for years, I thought it was a handsome cab. Right, but it quickly overtook the Hackney carriage as the preferred vehicle for hire because the handsome had two wheels rather than four and it's pulled only by one horse rather than two. And so it's smaller, it requires less horsepower, and it's even more manoeuvrable um, than the Hackney carriage. And because it's even more manoeuvrable, it becomes less expensive and therefore more affordable. And Hansom adds a nice little quirk by having the driver sat up behind and above the passenger compartment. And he actually communicates with the passengers down below through a trapdoor on top of, <laughs> top of the carriage. I didn't know that. But the interesting thing is, Mikey, at that time, before Hansom came along, normally a two-wheel horse-drawn vehicle... Its nickname was a cabriolet, which, of course, Hansom shortens to cab. You know, so we talk about cabriolets now, right. cars that, with the roofs that go down. They were actually, that was actually the word that was used for these two-wheel horse-drawn carriages. So Hansom uses the word cab when describing his new design. And it really does take off, not just in London, but, of course, on the other side of the pond, over in New York as well. Although, interestingly, taxi stands are still often called hack stands, after the original Hackney carriages that went over to New York first. But the last bit, Mike, which I thought you'd like, these new handsome cabs that Joseph introduced, they also featured mechanical devices called taximeters, uh, which calculated how far the carriage was going and how much the fare would be. And it's from the taximeter that we originally get the word taxis that we use today. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media, Twitter, Facebook, Insta, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at The Rest Is Hist. The Rest Is Hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And wherever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment on whichever platform you happen to use. It's always good to get your feedback. Yes, keep it all coming. Lots of fun. And lots of maps. <laughs> and lots of new guests to look forward to. Paulie, we've got guests galore, each with their very own hero and howler. <laughs>